Let it go, guys. Wasn't that beautiful? Hey, happy Mother's Day to all the moms and those gals who have mothered us. Even if that's not your official title, we want to celebrate all the moms and the gals who have shaped us, who have loved us, who have led us. So let's give it up for the mamas again. And it's great to see so many of y'all here in the room with us, but a special shout out to you to those of you who can't join us. We know we've got some moms out there and some of you are shut-ins like my mama, my mom back in Illinois. Good to see you. Good to have you with us today. And uh, it's just a beautiful thing that we can have you join us online as well. Now we know that being a parent can be a pretty awesome thing. Parenting brings a lot of joys and a lot of beautiful moments. Like a couple weeks ago, Right after church, my boy and I got to drive out to D.C. So like as soon as church was done, we hopped in the car. We drove out to D.C. for a three and a half day whirlwind father-son adventure, seeing the sights, doing all the history stuff. I'm ready for that. And then we got to go to everything. And, and that time with my boy made the long drive and the long lines and some of the nasty weather all worth it because we got to see every Smithsonian thing there is to see. We got to do all the fun stuff. We got to go to the museum and the Bible, which is really cool. Um, and then we stood in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, the nation's capital, and the White House, and we prayed together. In fact, what was really awesome was that my son didn't just... Say, hey, Dad, you're the preacher. You lead out on this. He took the initiative. And I got to listen to my boy pray for the people and the decisions in those buildings. And that's a pretty cool dad moment for me. Uh, Beautiful thing. But we know. We know that parenting isn't just all joy. It also comes with its fair share of heartaches and headaches. And it's not a job for the faint of heart. Every mom, every dad knows that there are those times when you're going to navigate your kid through skin knees or a disgruntled relationship, watching when they're kids and they get in a fight with their buddy or they're older and they go through relationship woes. You're going to deal with all kinds of things. Those of you who are you know, navigating the, the young parenting thing, you get it when the, the diaper doesn't hold as much as you think it should. Right? You, some of you parents remember those days and it's in the back seat of your car and you're like, what just happened here? You know, or you move the car seat out and you clean behind it and it's like, man, my kid has been like stashing goods for Armageddon. It's crazy, right? The amount of food they can get shoved underneath one of those car seats in a van. You just know like parenting brings these challenges and then there's headaches for, you know, dealing with kids when they're just not feeling well or they, you know, are keeping you up at night. But of all the parenting challenges throughout history, I think there's one parenting assignment that seems to be tougher than all the others. There was a moment a couple thousand years ago where an angel visited a young teenage virgin girl named Mary and said, Mary, you're going to be blessed with this incredibly miraculous conception, and you are going to be the mother of the Messiah. You get to be the mommy to the Savior of the world. Now, parents, I want you to imagine what it would be like to be the parent, to be the mom of the Messiah. Now, on one hand, that sounds like maybe that's a great assignment. That's a pretty easy gig. After all, your kid's perfect. There's not going to be any trips to the principal's office. There's not going to be worrying because they're going to be back after curfew. You're not going to have to deal with those teenage rebellious years. And and the kid, you know, who's pushing back against you, you're not going to have to worry about your boy messing around with drugs or alcohol or girls or any of that. Like, I mean, it's perfect parenting. And there's not going to be back talk and disrespect. I mean, on one hand, it seems awesome because your kid is perfect. But on the other hand, 
your kid is perfect and you're not. So when your boy who's perfect makes a statement about your driving, he's not wrong. When your boy makes a statement, he sees mom and dad in a little tiff, and he says, well, you know, mom, maybe if you just, maybe it's really about your heart. Maybe if you would have said this instead, you know, he's not going to be wrong. When you get into an argument with your son, there's no winning. He's the Messiah. He's the Holy One. So what would it be like to be the parent of the perfectly holy child? It's got to be a tough assignment. But when Mary received that assignment, she leaned into the good. She leaned into the beautiful. And she offered a prayer of praise to God. And she did it in a song. You know, it's okay to pray in song. It's okay to sing your prayers to God sometimes. In fact, I hope that's how we approach the songs we sing when we come together at times in this room. And we sing to God. I hope that we offer that as prayer from an honest heart saying, God, this is my prayer to you. This is my declaration, my praise sung to you. I I hope that's how we view those songs. It's okay to put prayer to music. And that's what Mary did. Now, some of you are going to be familiar with this passage I'm about to, to take us through because you grew up pouring through this, singing this, looking at this around Christmas time. Some of you, depending on your background and your tradition and church, you may have spent a few days digging into this in the month of May. So if that's you, if that was your background, I want you to come to it with fresh eyes and a new approach today. But this was Mary's response to being the mommy of the Messiah. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And certainly what a blessing she received then. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. Now his mighty arm has done tremendous things. Now he scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones, but he exalted the humble He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. What a beautiful song Mary sung to God. And like many of our old hymns that we would sing from time to time, or even many of our songs that we sing nowadays, the little more contemporary praise songs we offer here in the church, Those songs, those hymns were shaped by God's word and have been shaped by the Psalms in the Old Testament, the songbook, the hymn book for the Old Testament. So too was Mary's song. Mary's prayer was shaped by the Psalms, specifically Psalms 34, 103, 111, and others show up in there as well. But the song that spontaneously came to her lips was shaped by the church songbook of her childhood. She knew God's word and it shaped how she prayed. So friend, when big things in life happen to you, good or bad, what shapes your response? For me, one of the things that shapes my response, and I hope it shapes my response more and more and more, is God's word. God's word gives us kind of a programmatic approach to to life. It it helps us in the good times. It helps us in the bad times. It gives us a a shaping, a life-giving substance when good and bad comes our way. The Bible gives us language. When good things happen, 
to remember that every good gift is ultimately from God because he's a good God who loves us, takes care of us. He's a good daddy who wants good things for his kids. And when bad things come our way, it gives us encouragement. It gives us a reminder that God is still in charge. God is still on the throne. God is still working things out, not just for his glory, but also for our good. So we can take heart, even in those challenging times, God is at work behind the scenes, even when the situation looks bleak. God's word gives us encouragement. It gives us reason for praise. And the more familiar we are with God's word, the better equipped we are for any and every situation life will throw our way. Now, one thing I've learned along the way, though, is that it's tough to remember scripture you haven't read. It's tough to remember scripture you're not familiar with. If you haven't read a portion of the Bible, if you're not familiar with it, you're not going to remember. You're not going to have those verses pop in your mind. So the more familiar we are with God's word, the better equipped we are to handle the situations that come our way. And so we need to be people who are familiar with God's word. And we need to allow his words to guide and shape even our prayers. Mary's prayer was shaped by God's word in the Old Testament. Our prayer should be too. Not just shaped by our feelings or our fears, by the things we want, by the circumstances we face, but fate, but shaped by God's guiding words for us. So friend, I want to encourage you with this. Pray the Psalms. Turn to the Psalms and spend some time over the next weeks, months, looking into the Psalms, getting familiar with them, learning them, reading them. Open up your Bible app and hit the play button and let let the app play the psalm for you. Just listen into it. Read it on your own. Read it aloud and let it shape you. Let those words become your own. Let it shape how you pray. Let it shape what you pray. You'll find every emotion represented there. Joy, sorrow, grief, anger, revenge, praise, loneliness. It's one of the things I love about the psalms. It's just their raw honesty in approaching God. The psalmists seem to have more energy in their relationship with God. They seem to take more risks in their relationship with God. They seem to demand more of the relationship with God. They seem more to express more passion than we typically do in our prayers. So learn to pray those Psalms. I, I love turning to Psalms because you'll see everything. They, they yell at God. God, where are you? When he seems distant, they'll call God to, to take out their enemies. Hey God, these people who are against me, would you turn their heart to you? And if not, would you just wipe them out? That is not a typical Sunday morning prayer for us. It might be a typical thought for us, but it's not so that we often vocalize in our prayers. God, would you just wipe these people out? And they prayed that in community with others. They were honest in their prayers. They would ask God to, uh, to show up, begging God for help when life looked bleak, when things were going out of control. They celebrated God's magnificence in incredible ways. They confessed to God some really terrible things they had done. The Psalms have it all in there. So get familiar with them and let those shape your prayers. Let those become your prayers. Because the Psalms really are a textbook to learn how to pray honestly. Not a flowered up, perfected, formal version of prayer, but a real, raw, relational interaction with a God who we know ultimately cares for us. And it's evident Mary had been shaped by the Psalms. It's evident they shaped her prayers. And so Mary says to God, God, you are so good. You've done great things for me. What a blessing it is to be the mommy of the Messiah. But we know that there were moments in Mary's life that didn't quite match up with that prayer she prayed when she still had the baby in the belly. 
Right? You know there were moments along the way that were a bit more challenging where she thought, I'm not sure this is what I was praying for. Those moments of frustration, those moments of worry that she thought, oh, this is the Messiah. I won't have to deal with this. Like the time when Mary and Joseph took the whole family and their aunts and uncles and cousins and everybody with them and all the friends. And they journeyed to Jerusalem. And they spent a couple of days celebrating in Jerusalem. They went to the temple there. And then it was time to return home. And like some people in larger families do, they just said, oh, our, our boy's with the cousins. He's with the other boys. He's good. Now, my wife has three sisters. They're all married. There's a bunch of kids on that side of the family. There's like, you know, 14, 15, 16, I don't know, 4,000 kids at times, it feels like. At one point, they, most of them are in diapers and little. But as I got older, we'd say, all right, we're just going to trust the kids with their cousins. They're all running around their plan. And then you just think your kid is with some of the other family until the moment you know they're not. At which case, worry and frustration sets in. Who's supposed to be watching? Why did my kid wander off? Where are they? What's happening? And that was had to be the emotion for Mary and Joseph. They're wondering, where is Jesus? So they trek back to Jerusalem. They're looking for the boy. Where is their boy? Where is he? And then they find him in the temple teaching. And Mary looks at him and says, Jesus, where have you been? Now listen, that's the only time you can express that question appropriately is to the Messiah. So she says, Jesus, where have you been? He says, I've been right here in my father's house all along. What you worried about, mama? I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And you know all the worry. What's she supposed to say to that? But you know she was worried. You know she had frustration going into that. Or there was a time as every parent knows where you have those moments where as a parent you nudge your child to do something. But they say, no, I'm going to do it on my terms, my time, my way. Mary and Jesus are at a wedding. Jesus is older. He's an adult. And they run out of wine at the wedding. Mary leans over to Jesus. She says, hey, they still have some water. Maybe it's time for you to do your thing, right? You're, you're kind of the guy with some power, aren't you? Like water, they're out of wine, huh? And Jesus looks at his mom and says, Mom, it ain't my time. What are you talking about? And then like two minutes later, right, she, they have this conversation. He's like, no, 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 no. Now it's not the time, Mom. Just calm down. And he does it with all respect because he's Jesus. But then like two minutes later, he does it anyway, right? Like those times as a parent, you tell your kid to do something. like, no, I'm not doing it because you told me to do it. Oh, but I'm going to do it now because now I'm going to say I want to do it, right? Like so you know Mary said, like, oh, wait, what's going on here? There are these moments that Mary has got to be thinking, I'm not sure this quite gels with this assignment. But then there's one that's in a category all on its own. One moment that is so radically different for Mary. And it's that moment where she's at the foot of the cross, looking on in parental agony. As her boy, now a man, is crucified. And we have no recorded prayer from Mary from that moment. So whatever we would think she was praying is pure speculation. But I got to believe that in that moment, if Mary was praying anything, it was probably something like, hey God, what is happening here? This crowd, this crown, this cross, this is not what I prayed When I conceived this child. God this is not okay. Of all the great things you've done. All the mighty things you've done. This just doesn't seem to make sense. This is not okay. What would you have prayed in that moment? Could you have prayed in that moment? What words would come to mind? For Mary. She stands there. Looking on, still faithful, still trusting, still believing something's got to happen. So tough in that moment. 
You know, sometimes the pain is just too much. Sometimes the challenge too steep. Sometimes the words too empty and too few for us. Sometimes that's okay. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, reminds them, reminds us, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't even know how to pray as we ought. But the Holy Spirit prays for us. Church, isn't that a beautiful thing? That the shy member of the Trinity is praying for you, interceding for you, speaking to the Father on your behalf. And he does it with groanings that can't even be expressed in words. You ever have one of those moments where words just fail you? All you have is that guttural utterance. Sometimes it's an anger. Sometimes it's an anguish. All you have are groanings. And the Spirit groans for us. Now the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us. If we believe in him, he pleads for us in harmony with God's own will. And the beautiful thing is that we can know that in any and every situation, in all of it, God is working for the good. Now that doesn't mean God caused that situation. It doesn't mean God caused the difficulty, that God caused the suffering, that God caused the challenge, the sickness, the illness, the whatever. But God will, he's allowed it and he will use that And he will turn what is bad into good for those who have answered the call, who are pursuing God's purpose on their life. What a beautiful promise that is, that when we can't find words to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for us. And that when things are looking bad, when we can't even see past the pain, we can rest assured that God is still at work. He's still sovereign. He is redeeming that pain, even in that moment, for his glory and for our good. Now, Mary couldn't see in that moment at the cross, couldn't see what was coming. She didn't know what to anticipate. She couldn't see in that moment that a resurrection was right around the corner. She didn't know that all that anguish, all that suffering, all that pain, all that hurt, all that misery was about to give way to glory, to beauty, to life. She couldn't see that death was coming to her son so that life would come to everyone and that His life would be resurrected in just a few days. Resurrection was right around the corner. And sometimes we can't see that either. So let's be honest. Sometimes things don't go the way we plan. A lot of times things don't go the way we pray. Sometimes what we pray for, what we hope for, what we want God to do is just not how God does it. It's not what God ends up providing for us. And sometimes that hurts. We pray that as the company is scaling back, that our job won't be one that's eliminated. We pray that that secret, that sinful secret we've kept locked up won't be made known. We pray that our family member or our friend would heal from the illness, would recover from the accident. We pray for the depression to end, the pull of addiction to stop. And then we continue to hope, we continue to pray, we continue to find ourselves hoping that God would turn that bad into good and then it all plays out exactly opposite of the way we think it should. And that's hard. Because in that moment, we become discouraged with prayer, we get disillusioned with life, we get disappointed with God. You prayed for your parents to fall back in love. 
but they got divorced anyway. Prayed for your friend to heal. He ended up at a graveside anyway. As life seemed like it was unraveling for you, you prayed that God would bring it back together and it fell apart anyway. So what do you do with that? What do we do with that? Well, I want to offer us just a few principles to guide our prayers as we approach God. The first is I'm going to encourage us to pray without presumption. Sometimes I have to ask myself, am I praying this way because I feel like God owes it to me, like I'm entitled to something? Am I praying like trying to cut a deal with God? You know, God, I've been really good lately. You know, I mean, you ever have one of those prayers? You've heard people say the prayer, you know, God, I've been good. I don't cuss anymore, I, well, except for when I drive, but I think you're okay with that. And God, I've been good, you know, and I, you know, I, I've been giving more money to the church. And, and, and you know, God, I, I've been, you know, I, I cut out the drinking mostly, I mean, except special occasions. And, and God, you know, now it's your turn to pony up, you do something for me. Or maybe it's, you know, God, I, I really, really, really believe in you, and, and, and I know you can do this. I mean, your Bible says you can do all these things, and so, you know, I believe you can. I, I have faith in you. I'm, I'm going to say that I had the faith, and, and your word says that a little faith goes a long way, so God, it's your turn. Is that how it works? Maybe you've been told if only you had a little more faith, if only your faith were stronger, then God would. That's the same flawed and cruel language that Job's friends used for him in the Old Testament. Job was a faithful man who was stripped of his prosperity, stripped of his health, stripped of his family. Like everything was just torn away from this guy. Life was was painful. And Job's well-meaning, well-intentioned friends came and said, well, Job, there must be some unconfessed sin in your life. You've got to deal with that. Well, Job, if you just had more faith, if you just believed more, you know, Job, if you just got your stuff together, then God. And Job couldn't see, and, and his buddies, even worse, couldn't see that what was happening in that moment was that there was this struggle, this cosmic interaction between God and Satan, between good and evil, that Job and his buddies weren't even aware of. And that cruel language, you know, sometimes well-intentioned, well-meaning Christians say the same things. Sometimes, you know, if you just had proper faith, you would end up with a prosperity you so desire. If you've ever heard that, if you've ever been hurt by that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Listen, we know that there were moments when Jesus looked at people and said, your faith has healed you. You are healed because of your faith. And there were moments when Jesus said, the healing didn't happen because your lack of faith. But that was in every moment. And and I want to be really careful not to play the, the part of the faith barometer for other people. I mean, it's obvious sometimes. You see some people, you know, like, man, that person seems to have faith that's off the charts. And you go to somebody else, you're like, I don't think that person has any faith at all. But, you know, for the most part, I want to be careful not to play the faith barometer, the faith judge for other people. Instead, I'm, I'm going to work on increasing my faith as I go and help others to do the same. I think that's just a safer way to do it. But we know that even with a lot of faith, it might play out differently. We know that faith is a big deal. It plays a part. We know that grace comes to us through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. God gives us grace. Faith is how we access that. Faith is a big deal in our spiritual life and our life in general. It's a big deal in our prayers. But I also want to be careful of how we approach that. Because I've known people of extraordinary faith 
Men and women whose faith is just off the charts, who prayed for healing of somebody else and still stood at the graveside. I've known men and women with extraordinary faith who still ended up in the grave themselves. I've known men and women on the mission field whose faith was just unbelievable and who faced unspeakable torture, persecution from those who opposed them. So sure, faith plays a part. And we got to acknowledge that ongoing, unconfessed, willful sin can get in the way of our relationship with God. It can stunt what he wants to do for us. It hinders our prayers. But just because we have righteousness, just because we have the right behavior, doesn't necessarily mean that things will work out in what we think is the right way. Friend, there's no fixed formula. Get your life together, say all the right words, then it will all work out for you. So I want to caution us from praying as though God owes us anything. In fact, I would say God owes us absolutely nothing. He doesn't even owe us salvation. And if you have received salvation from Jesus, if you claim that, if God never does another good thing for you this side of eternity, you still have way more than you deserve. Like God doesn't owe us. But yet... He's a really good dad who wants to do really good things for his kids. So we need to approach him with humility, but also confidence. You you may have heard some people pray in a way that it almost sounds like what they're praying means that God is obligated to do what they ask. Like sometimes we can twist God's word and say, well, God, because you did that then, you are obligated to do that now for us. And that's, again, I just want to suggest that maybe we take our cue from another scripture like, Rak, Shan, and Benny, three Israelite guys who were under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. And, and old, good old King Nebi had said, you know, bow before my idols, bow before me, you know, follow me. And these guys were like, no, we're not going to do that because that's wrong. We serve God alone. And he's like, well, if you don't bow before my idols, you don't bow before me, then, then I'm going to throw you in the first. We're going to execute you by burning you. And they're like, do what you will. And this is how they respond. Shadrach and Benny replied to old Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you, king. You're just a guy. So if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. Everybody say able to save. save. All right. He is able to save us. And he will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he does not, I love the humility there, even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Our God is able to save, but even if he doesn't, we're good. Friends, we should petition God. We, we should bring what we have before God. We should give him our request. He wants us to, he invites us to. Scripture tells us to approach the throne of grace with all confidence. But it does not say arrogance. Approach God knowing that he can, knowing that he will, but not knowing exactly how he will. So we need to go to God. Secondly, let's consider the possibility that God's agenda might look a bit different than ours. That what God is up to might look different than what we want. Oftentimes, I find myself praying, I hear others praying for things like prosperity, for things like you know success and, and good health and happy outcomes, relief from difficulties. And then I'm struck by how Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, with his beatitude, says that the blessed life looks exactly the opposite of the things that we pray for so often. Jesus says the blessed life is filled with things like poverty and mourning and hunger and persecution. And it appears that, at least for me, 
How I define good and how God defines good sometimes are like other ends of the spectrum from each other. That's a little disconcerting at times. But it's not wrong to ask God to remove bad things from us, to say, God, I don't want this bad thing. In fact, Jesus even did that. Jesus knew he was going to be resurrected, and yet, right before he was crucified, this is his prayer. Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. God, this cross that I'm about to bear doesn't look good. I, it's not how I define good, like being crucified. So if there's another way, I know it's kind of like the like last minute. If there's another way for us to do it, can we do it that way? But then he says, yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. I love the humility there. God, I trust you, Father. I trust you even in the pain. And in that moment, an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. You know, Jesus was thinking, all right, cross, here we come. I asked. This is not the way I wanted it to go. And so Jesus prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat became like blood. Listen, I've had some anguished prayers in my life. I've had some fervent prayers in my life. I have yet to pray where I'm sweating. I sweat a lot. Listen to my family to that. But I have yet for my sweat to turn into blood when I pray. But I have yet to face crucifixion for the salvation of the world. But isn't that what... Difficult circumstances do. They they cause us to pray more fervently with more passion, with more intensity. Because we have so much more desperation for God. God, we need you. So that's how Jesus approached it. And it's not wrong that we would ask God for good things instead of bad things. It's not bad. It's not wrong to pray for peace instead of persecution. To pray for provision instead of poverty. Healing instead of hurting. But just know that as we pray for those things, sometimes God is going to remove those things from us. Sometimes God's just going to move us through those things. More often the latter. Because he's forming us and growing us in it. So we pray knowing that God is able, that God is the God of miraculous, that God can miraculously intervene. And we pray knowing that sometimes he will. And we believe that and we trust it and we come to him. We come to him knowing he's a God of resurrection because we have hindsight. Mary didn't get to see the resurrection yet. But we come to him knowing that he's a God of resurrection. We come to him knowing that Shadrach and Benny went into the furnace saying, you throw us in and our God will save. We don't know how. Guess what? He saved them. And while they were there, there was a fourth one in the fire. It appears God made a statement in that fire with them. They looked in and these guys came out. They smelled a little smoky, but they were alive. Clothes may have been a little charred, but they were alive. See, our God is the God who is able. We're just not guaranteed for how he will do what he does. So here's the primary principle. From whatever you're facing, don't stop praying. Don't get disillusioned. Don't get discouraged. Just acknowledge God might be up to something you can't see, but keep giving it to him. This was the way that Scottish minister John Bailey prayed. Bailey prayed this. He said, God, teach me to use all the circumstances of my life to produce righteousness, not sin. And then he prayed this. said, let disappointment produce patience. Let success produce gratitude. Trouble produce perseverance. Danger produce courage. Let reproach produce long-suffering. Let praise produce humility and pleasures produce moderation. Let pain produce endurance and all of it produce more faith in me. Friend, let's allow God to use whatever we face to grow our faith. And allow him to show himself off and however he would. I mean, that was what Paul was doing. Bailey's prayer shaped by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome for his faith and under the threat of persecution. And so he wrote to his friends at the church of Philippi, a church he had planted, and he said, hey, 
Whatever they do to me is probably coming to you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to identify with Jesus in your suffering. That Jesus suffered and suffering doesn't have to be looked at as so terrible. Identify with him there and find closer faith with Jesus through your suffering. Also, joy and suffering don't have to be absent from one another. While you suffer, find joy. Always choose the joy of Jesus, no matter what comes your way. And lastly, Paul said, give it all to Jesus. Pray about all of it. And then he gave him this instruction. He said, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, everybody say every situation. situation. All right, everybody say it. Every situation. There you go. And all of it, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the God of peace, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, it'll guard your minds in Christ Jesus. I love that promise. I believe that promise. I hope you believe that promise. Friend, that whatever we face, we can give it to God. We can pray with confidence and humility, knowing that our God is able and that he will save. We might not know how, but knowing that resurrection is right around the corner. Let's pray. God, we come to you confessing that too often we pray with our agenda, not yours, that too often when things don't go the way we hope, we get discouraged and disillusioned. And God, we put that on you instead of on us. And God, too often we want our own things. So God, teach us to hunger for righteousness and to allow you to use all situations in life, good and bad, to produce more faith in us. God, teach us to pray about all of it, not to worry, not to be anxious, but to be faithful in prayer, trusting that you will work, giving you room to work in us. God, teach us to be people of prayer. Teach us to pray without presumption. And teach us to give any and every situation to you, knowing that you are the God of resurrection, that you are the God who turns all of it to good as we keep turning to you. So that's our confidence and our hope. And that's why we cling to you, Jesus. We thank you for your cross that proves it all. We thank you for an empty grave that proves it all. So we look to you, our risen, reigning, redeeming, loving Savior Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.